So we continue our study today in the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11. And I'll start with a little story. I had a friend. I had a friend who decided to try his hand in real estate. And he didn't have any previous experience at all. He came into some funds. He inherited some funds. And he said he was going to try his hand in real estate. He was a pretty smart guy. And I expected him to do fairly well like most things that he did. But then he started acquiring properties and I became very, very concerned. Because my friend decided to purchase vacant lots all across the city of Crown Point, Indiana. He purchased vacant lots, he purchased dilapidated houses, he purchased dilapidated farmland that seemed like it was absolutely no good. And I was very worried that he was squandering this great opportunity that he had, buying all of this poor, poor land. And so one day we were driving on one of his properties and I asked him, you know, why would you invest your, your money? Why would you invest your money in these ways? And he told me he got this idea from a book. He said he read a book that said, that the three most important factors in buying real estate, you've probably heard this, are location, location, location. Crown Point wasn't developing at the time, but Crown Point, shortly after he bought all of those properties, they began a redevelopment project in the city. Hmm. And the property that he had acquired for $30,000, he was able to sell for $200,000 six years later. A property that he bought for $75,000, he sold for half a million dollars to the University of Chicago. And right now they're building a, uh, an elaborate $100 million facility on the property that he was wise enough to purchase location, Location, location. As in real estate, so it is in the life of the believer. Location is ever important. We live in an era of displacement. A world of exiles where the vast majority of humanity is struggling to find its place, its location. The people of South America line the borders of our country trying to find their place. Uprooted by war and by violence by the year 2016, 65.6 .6 million of people around the world had fled their homelands in search of their place in the world, location, location, location. In this day and age, our young people are struggling under the burden of identity crisis, where they're being given the keys to their own futures way too early. They're being advised and instructed to find their place, to find their community in this melting pot of ideas and social constructs. 
They do not know their place. They do not know their location, but the children of God do not exist in this world in search of a place, in search of some place to belong. We have a place. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 tells us that we have come to Mount Zion. And we have come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We have a place. And the Bible says it's a place that's not made with hands. It is a place that is not dependent upon the changing landscapes or philosophies of this world. Or as Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we are not in the flesh. We are not located in the flesh. Our minds are not set upon the things. Our minds are not influenced by the flesh. And the flesh can be described as the body that is inundated by sin and by sinful desires. Paul says you are not in the flesh. The flesh can be described as the body that is bound by the world or by the devil to obey its every command. You, Paul says, are not in the flesh. The children of God are not in bondage to our sinful natures. We still have sinful natures. But by the power of the Spirit of God who is at work within us, we have overcome the flesh. We now live beyond the flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have muted our opposition. By the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, Jesus Christ has subdued our fleshly inclinations and he has set us free. You are not in the flesh, Paul says. But you are in the Spirit. The children of God are located in the Spirit of God. That's where we reside. If, if, Paul says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's a caveat. You are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the mystery of being in the world yet being animated by a source that is beyond this world. This is the mystery of being in the world, not deriving our identities from the world. And this is how Jesus Christ lived. This is how Jesus Christ understood himself and his place in this world. And this is how the children of God are to understand our place. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are in the world, but not animated, not influenced, not directed by this world. But we are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God is in us. 
It's the way Jesus lived. Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so are you and so am I. We are in the Father. Do you ever consider yourself to be in God, inside of God? Every child of God has been invited into this holy dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each of us who calls on the name of the Lord in truth has been inducted into the Holy Trinity. Let me say it again. Each of us who calls on the name of the Lord have been inducted into the Holy Trinity. We are in the Father. In the Father is where we live and where we breathe. In the Father is the place from which we derive our sense of meaning, identity, and purpose in this world. We are in the Spirit if indeed God's Spirit dwells in us. But, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to God. If anyone has not repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that person does not belong to Christ. If anyone has not submitted their lives to the teachings of Jesus Christ and of the written word of God, that person, Paul says, is not known by Jesus Christ. She is not claimed by Christ. She belongs to this world. Last week, myself and the elders received a link to a dissertation from a Christian leader regarding the idea, regarding the concept of inclusion versus exclusion in the church. This is one of the more prominent discussions going on among Christian thinkers today. Inclusion versus exclusion. Should the church be exclusive or inclusive? And it is not a coincidence that this is the same topic on the minds of unbelievers as well. Everyone is wrestling and struggling with this question. The main question is, should the church include or exclude marginalized people groups within society? Or how should the church interact with specialized groups within our spheres of influence. This question framed in this way, this question is no different from the question being asked by major corporations, by major brands of every stripe today, as more and more groups make claim to marginalized status. And it makes sense that the world would ask this question. It makes sense that businesses would ask this question because they have to grapple with and try to understand and try to identify with everybody because they would like to sell their products to as many people as possible. No one is excluded. That's a business model. It should be that way. Businesses exist to make a profit. Businesses exist to make money. And without people, without people from every walk of life buying their products, that company will fail. So it's a good question for the world to ask. Should we include or should we exclude certain people groups? 
But the church should not be wrestling with this question. Because this question is too simple. The church of Jesus Christ is not and has never been exclusive. The church is called out by Jesus Christ himself to go into the highways and the hedges to compel men and women to come. But not to come to church. (laughs) Jesus doesn't send us into the world to compel people to come to church. Jesus Christ has not sent us into the world to compel people to come to a physical location to see a man do a thing. But Jesus Christ has called us to compel people to come into the kingdom of God. Anybody can walk through the church doors. And anyone who does find their way into the doors of any church should be welcomed with open arms, whether they have repented or not whether they have been baptized or not, whether they are practicing sin or not, everyone is welcome into the physical church of God. But what Paul is teaching here is that while the church may be inclusive, the kingdom of God is an exclusive kingdom where only those who have the spirit of Jesus Christ are acknowledged and known by him. You can't change that. The kingdom of God, I'll say it again, the kingdom of God is an exclusive kingdom. The Bible says that many are called, but only a few are chosen. The kingdom of God has always been exclusive. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. King Saul have I rejected, King David I am am rising up. The kingdom of God has always been exclusive. So the church shouldn't be wrestling with that question. It's too simple of a question. The church is open to all, but the kingdom of God is off limits to anyone, Paul says, who does not have the spirit of Jesus Christ. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. That's plain enough. So to have the spirit of Christ is to belong to Christ, that's what it means. To have the spirit of Christ is to have Jesus Christ himself living within you, influencing you, leading you. But if one is not possessed by the spirit of Jesus Christ, that person is not living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not their Lord, then that person does not belong to him. This is the word of the Lord. One spiritual location is the key factor in determining ownership. And every human soul belongs either to the flesh and the world or to Jesus the Christ. Spiritual location determines ownership. And spiritual location has existential implications. Paul says it in verse 10. That if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin. I wish, I wish that believers would understand and truly 
believe this, that if Jesus Christ is in you, the body, the flesh is dead because of sin. This is somewhat of a complicated text we're working on, so I'm going to recap right here. I'm going to recap the last few phrases that Paul has taught us. If Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, the body of this death, your flesh is dead because of sin. If you are in Christ, the flesh has been judged through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says became sin on our behalf. Jesus Christ became sin. So that when Jesus Christ died on that tree, sin died as well. Sin has already been judged. Sin has already been condemned in Jesus Christ. And if you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then sin has also died in you. How? Through the Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in you. Such is the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. And your body, your flesh is dead. Your body has already undergone the punishments that are the result of sin, which is death. This is why the, ch the children of God cannot be judged. This is why the children of God will not be condemned because Jesus Christ has already judged and condemned sin in us. That is if we have the spirit of Christ. And the surest and the clearest sign that the Spirit of Christ is in you is found in these words of Peter from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, where he explains that the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human lusts, but for the will of God. This is what it means for the body to be dead because of sin. It means that the flesh has already been crucified in Jesus Christ. So much so that we are no longer bound to live the rest of our lives for human lust and depraved desire. But for the will of God. Paul says in Romans, in verse 10 of Romans chapter 8, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Yet, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. You know the story that God the Father warned Adam in the garden that if he ate from the forbidden tree, he would surely die. That's what he said. Adam, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. But we see that after Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden tree, they were still alive, physically. So in what sense, in what sense did Adam and Eve die? Adam and Eve died spiritually. It was a spiritual death. And this is a very important point for us to understand. I explained it to us a few weeks ago. I'll describe it again today. 
that the human spirit of a person is supposed to be in communion with God. And my human spirit is supposed to receive instruction from God and turn around to my soul and my mind and give those instructions to my soul and to my mind. This is what the Lord says. And my soul and my mind are supposed to receive those instructions and turn around to my body and tell my body, this is what you must do in alignment with what the spirit, what my human spirit said that God said. This is the way we are supposed to live from top to bottom, from spirit to body. That's the way we were designed by God to exist in this world, in constant spiritual communion with him. And directing our affairs, directing our thoughts, our minds, and our actions, and our bodies according to the commands that the spirit, that the human spirit received from the spirit of God. Spirit speaks to spirit. When I was in the military, I was sent on many operations or missions in different parts of the world, never to fight, never to kill, just different responsibilities around the world. And those orders came from the general of our brigade. But as a private, I never met the man. I didn't know who the man was. I never met the general a day in my life. But the general would give the instruction to the colonel, and the colonel would give the instruction to the major, and the major gives the instruction to the captain, who gives it to the sergeant, who gives it to me, the lowest man on the totem pole. In the grand scheme of human anatomy, the body is the lowest man on the totem pole, and God does not talk to the body. He follows chain of command. God speaks to spirit. Spirit speaks to soul and mind. Soul and mind speaks to body. That's the order in the kingdom of God. So what happened? What happened to us? What happened to us is Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their human spirit died. And without a human spirit, there was no means to communicate with God anymore. They became self-directed without God, without his instruction, without his direction, without the ability to hear the voice of the Lord. That's what happened to us. And every person who has been born from Adam and Eve suffers the same fate. We are born spiritually dead. But Paul says, if the spirit of Christ is in you, your human spirit is now alive because of righteousness. The human spirit within you has been resurrected through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now you can both hear and respond to the directives of God. Now you can obey the commandments of God as laid out in the scripture. If Christ is in you, not only can you now hear the voice of God, but you can also be nourished by his spirit. You can drink in his words. You can be comforted by the Holy Spirit because now your spirit man is alive. And Paul concludes in verse 11 that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a mouthful. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, then you dwell in the spirit of Christ. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, then Christ knows you and Christ claims you as his own. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, then your body, your flesh is dead because of sin, but your human spirit is resurrected. Yet before we received Jesus Christ, before we came into the knowledge of the truth, the exact opposite was true. Those who are devoid of the spirit of Christ do not have Christ within them. And Christ does not claim them as his own. Their spirits are dead and their flesh is alive, animating them and leading them into rebellion against the commandments of God. But the question may be asked, if the body of the believer is dead, why or how are we still here? If the body of the believer is already crucified, why or how do we still exist in a physical form? Because our bodies are not physically dead. Our bodies are dead to sin. Just as at one point our spirits were dead to God. Now as the children of God, our bodies have become dead to sin, no longer influenced by sin. In our previous lives, we were led from the bottom up, the flesh with its desires, with its lust, dictated to our minds. Our minds inundated our souls with sinful passions and our spirits the entire time were restricted from interfering. Our spirits were held captive, muted and overwhelmed by the ruler of this world and by our flesh. This body of death was in charge of my life, directing my life, manipulating my thoughts, driving me into sinful action. But Paul says, if we are in Jesus Christ, this body of sin has been arrested, it has been tried, it has been found guilty and condemned to death. This is what it means to be saved, to be rescued from the body of this death. And now since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead gives new life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. We are now animated by the spirit of God. We are now influenced by the spirit of God. This is the life of the believer. Through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our flesh has been crucified and our spirits have been resurrected in Christ. And through the spirit of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we now walk in newness of life. And we can obey the laws and the commands of God. We do not obey the law of God in order to be saved, though. 
We obey the laws of God because we are saved. We don't obey the law of God in order to get to heaven. We obey the law of God because we already exist in heaven. And our lives are no longer submitted to sinful lust and sinful passion, but to the will of God, which we eagerly and humbly desire to serve and to obey. I believe today like never before. Our churches lack good teaching on what it means to be saved. I believe today like never before, our churches lack good teaching, sound doctrine on the operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So people come to Jesus Christ and they think they have to do this thing all on their own and in their own strength. And they keep failing over and over and over again and they're so frustrated. Jesus says, you know what you have to do if you want to be saved? Just believe. Believe the, 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 the message of the gospel. Believe that you have indeed died to your flesh, that you have risen spiritually from the dead. Believe it. And watch it come to pass in your own life. This is what it means to be saved. That we're no longer slaves to fear, but we are now the children of God. And we, you, have power. The children of God have power. Not political power, not social power. But we have power over our flesh. We have mastered our sinful natures and desires. And every day, again and again, we die to ourselves by the power of God. And every day, without fail, we rise from the dead, filled with the Spirit of God, able to pursue the will of God for our lives. This is what it means to be saved. So where are you located? That's the question. Where are you located? Where do you find yourself today and every day? Where are you located? Are you in the spirit of Christ? Or are you in the flesh? Because what Paul the Apostle is saying here, and Paul, Paul is not talking to sinners. Paul is talking to the saints. He is warning the saints. You have to ask yourself a question. Is the Spirit of Christ in you or not? Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, that if the body has suffered already, then you have ceased from sin. If you have been crucified already, then you have ceased from sin from practicing sin, from living a sinful lifestyle. Now, let me just clarify. I'm not saying that in order to get to heaven, you have to live a sinless life. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the proof and the sign that the Spirit of God is in you is that you can wage war against your flesh and you can win. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. Yeah. All of us are being sanctified day by day. All of us are being sanctified. But we should have at this point mastered our flesh to some degree. 
I fear sometimes that the gospel that we're preaching people is this easy grace where all you have to do is believe and like magic, you're in the kingdom and your life must show no signs that you're a child of God. You don't need any proof that you're a child of God. You can continue doing whatever you were doing before you came through the church doors and you will be saved. This is not true. That is false doctrine. If the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, you should be changed and you should be ever-changing and evolving, growing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. We must not allow the grace of God to make us become spiritually lazy and lackadaisical. We must not allow the grace of God to cause us to take his grace in vain. where we sin with ease because, hey, God likes me and God gives me grace, so, so why not? No, no, that may be proof that the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you. Hmm. Where are you located? Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe the, the Word of God, that the Spirit of God, that Jesus Christ himself is alive in you? that you are dead, that you have disappeared. And the life that I now see in front of me is the life of Jesus Christ. That's the scripture. That is the mystical union between us and our God. I'm fervent about this because I see so many believers who are not getting the victory in their lives. I see so many believers who are constantly defeated and anxious and angry and worried and full of sin and always struggling to cease from sin. Why are you struggling to cease from sin? Believe the scriptures. <laughs> Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he raised physically and bodily from the dead. Believe the implications of his death and resurrection for your life. Just believe and you will see the salvation of our God. And though you may stumble occasionally, your life will not be a lifestyle of sin. No, no. We have to get away from this idea of disagreeing with the law of God. This is an idea that is permeating the people of God today. We disagree with the law of God. The law doesn't matter. The law is inconsequential. The law, God did not mean what he said. If I'm already in Christ, then I can't be judged no matter what I do. This is not true. This is why Jesus Christ himself said that the way that leads to destruction is broad, but the way that leads to eternal life is extremely narrow because most of the people who are calling on his name do not have his spirit and he will not claim them as his own. <laughs> That's the tough gospel. That's the gospel many preachers don't want to preach today. That's the tough gospel. But I'll say it again because the Bible is clear on it. The kingdom of God has always and will always be exclusive. You can come into the church, but coming into the church does not mean you've come into the kingdom. It's a whole different world. And God reserves the right to reject and to marginalize anyone that he chooses. 
His church can't. We cannot. We're merely human. But God has already excluded many people from the kingdom. Anyone who will not profess faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who will not lay down their lives and trust Jesus Christ for his life, anyone who will not do that will not be included in the kingdom of heaven. No matter whether you're a deacon or an elder or a pastor, whoever you are, you will not be included. I'll say this and I'll end right here. In preaching a message like this, I don't want to leave us with this misunderstanding that what I'm saying is, you got to try harder to do what's right. You got to try hard. You got to try hard. No. What I'm saying is we have to understand the scriptures and believe them more deeply. That's all you can do. You can't cease from sin on your own. That's not possible. You will, you will not get the victory over your own flesh, but the gospel already has. And if you believe and drink in this gospel of Jesus Christ more deeply and more deeply, he will drive sin out. He will condemn sin in your flesh, and you will cease from sin. I know it's true. I know it's true. What does this mean then? What does this mean? Does this mean then that when you come to Jesus that all of your, your sins, your habits, your hurts, your hangups, they all just go away? No, that's not what it means. I told you guys my testimony before. I was in the military, and this is the truth. I was in the military. 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old. I was drinking beer constantly. I was drunk almost every night of my military experience. And I was reading the Bible, drinking beers. I was preaching the gospel, drinking beers. I sincerely loved God. I sincerely had an affection for God. I know for a fact that there are going to be people in heaven who still have hurts and habits and hangups. It's going to, it has to be so. It has to be. There are going to be all kinds of people in the kingdom of God that we're not expecting to see. I really believe that. I was preaching with sincerity and people were getting saved. My wife got saved while I was preaching the gospel, drinking beer. I'm not saying that you're going to be sin free. Sin, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that over time, the grace of God and the spirit of God should develop you and you should change. Degree by degree. There are going to be all kinds of sinners in heaven, but I'm going to tell you the sinner who's not going to, you want to know the sinner who is not going to be in heaven? The person who takes God's grace for granted and who says to God, this is what I am, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and you've got to accept it because of A, B, C, and D. That person will not enter the kingdom of God. Any person who disagrees with the commandments of God will not exist in the kingdom of God. One thing God will not be is called a liar. <laughs> and if you claim to be his child, you must agree with his law, even if you cannot abide by his law. Humble yourself. <laughs> Don't disagree with the law because you can't do it. Don't tell God that he's wrong just because you can't live up to his standard. Don't try to dilute and water down the truth of the laws of God because you can't live up to the standard. Just confess, I can't live up to it, but I still love you. But the moment you say to God, my wrong is now right, <laughs> you're already finished. You're finished because God will not be called a liar. You will not exist in the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ is supposed to be the king and you've made the decision that he's incorrect. 
you won't be there with him like that because you do not honor his lordship. And if you will not honor the lordship of Jesus Christ, you do not belong to Christ and you will not share in his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word that we are called as children of God to boldly proclaim to the world, no matter what they think we're saying, this is the word of the Lord. It will not change. Jesus Christ said, not one jot, not one tittle of my word will pass away until all things have been fulfilled. And it is so. The word of God stands. <laughs> the word of God from the ancient of days stands and it stands forever. So don't worry about trying to live a sinless life. Concern yourself with being sincere, with loving God as best you can with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with agreeing with God that he is right and you are wrong. <laughs> you just may make it into the kingdom. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the spirit of Jesus Christ who dwells in us. We thank you for the power and for the grace that you have given us to fight against, to oppose, and to overcome our sinful natures, our flesh. And we pray today, Lord God, that you would increase our faith, that as you have increased our knowledge, as you have increased our understanding, increase our wisdom. Give us faith to believe all that you have said in the scripture. Give us the ability to fully comprehend what it means to be saved, to be delivered, to be set free, and allow us by your spirit to walk in newness of life like never before by the faith that you have implanted within each of us. Increase our faith. I pray, Lord God, for a season of sweet, holy communion with you. An opportunity for we, the children of God, to gather around your throne, to be nourished, to be comforted by you. Give us strength to face each day. Give us strength to fight against the sin that is so pervasive in our world and even in our hearts. Give us the strength and the faith and the power to overcome sin. You have called us because we were sick. You have healed our spirits. You have caused us to rise from the dead in our spirits. Awaken us again. Revive us again. So that our spirits can speak to the spirit of our God. And as we behold the glory of God in your face, Lord Jesus, I pray that we will be forever conformed into your image, into your likeness, that we might become sin-free, not for the purpose of making it to heaven, but because we desire with all of our hearts to be just like you. We pray for the resurrection. We pray for newness of life. We pray for victory. There are some today under the sound of my voice who are not feeling very victorious. 
There are some under the sound of my voice who are feeling beaten, broken down, and bruised by this world, discouraged and dismayed. I pray for them today that your Holy Spirit would invade their spaces, that the light of the truth of your gospel would invade the darkness in their minds and the darkness in their hearts, that you would give them light, that in your light they may see light. In Jesus' name, amen.